Hi, this is John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the National Security This Week podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe so you'll receive a new edition of the podcast every week. Please leave us a review as well and tell others about us. And please contact us with any feedback or opinions you might have by emailing nstw at kymnradio.net. We hope you find the show informative and interesting. Thanks again. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, March 2nd, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. We get together here on KYMN Radio every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and often from across the nation to help us explore American national security. I'm your host for the next hour, and my name is John Olson. This show covers all aspects of national security. You've often heard me talk about the tools of national power, those tools being diplomacy, the power of information, uh, sharing that information, uh, military power, and, and certainly economic power. And how those tools are used is uh, referred to as statecraft, uh, which should, I think, be thought of as both an art and a science uh, used at the same time. Nations apply statecraft in various ways, sometimes concentrating on the hard, hard power aspects uh, like military power. We're seeing that play out right now uh, between Russia and Ukraine but also economic sanctions and uh, those kinds of things. We're going to talk a little bit more about those issues today. Other times, nations may practice soft power, the the sharing of information uh, or diplomatic engagement uh, toward achieving common goals and economics, the rule of law, or humanitarian issues. One aspect of diplomacy that is not well understood but serves a vital role in America's engagement with the world is something referred to as public diplomacy. We're going to take a deep dive into public diplomacy today with a very experienced diplomat. Margot Squire served as a career diplomat for 30 years with both the U.S. Information Agency and the U.S. Department of State. She completed assignments in Munich, Moscow, Melbourne, Baku, Ankara, Kabul, and Washington. Uh, Margot Squire has extensive experience in public affairs, media relations, educational exchanges, management of U.S. government assistance activities, and even U.S. policy on non-proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. Highlights of Margot Squire's career include service as Director of Democratic Initiatives in the State Department's Office of Coordination for Assistance to the New Independent States, where she managed U.S. government-supported democracy programs throughout the countries of the former Soviet Union, including those related to the rule of law, policing, civil society, elections, and free media. Uh, Again, we're we're tapping into Margot Squire's experience today on on current events. Uh, We'll have a lot more to talk about there. She was also a director of press and public outreach for the state's Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs, supporting the press work of 54 U.S. embassies and developing communication strategies for major events across the region, including the U.S. response to the color revolutions in Ukraine and Georgia. As director of the Policy Leadership Division of the Foreign Service Institute's Leadership and Management School, she managed and led senior-level training involving multiple agencies and emerging issues such as cybersecurity, conflict resolution, and peacebuilding. As director of the Office of Strategic Communications and Outreach of the State Department's Bureau of International Security and Nonproliferation, she spearheaded efforts to build public support for U.S.-led multilateral efforts to remove chemical weapons from Syria and the Arms Trade Treaty, a U.N. treaty covering international weapons transfers. Margot Squire earned a Bachelor of Arts from Dartmouth College and a Master of Arts from Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. She retired from the State Department but returned in 2021 to serve in the American Embassy in Kabul for 11 months, supporting 27 educational centers that provided both Afghan men and women across the country access to the outside world, 
an opportunity to support change in their local communities. She currently works as a consultant in international affairs, speaking with groups on U.S. foreign policy and international affairs. She develops and leads tours at three museums in Minneapolis, as a matter of fact, the Museum of Russian Art, the Minneapolis Institute of Art, and the Weissman Art Museum. And she is an election officer for the state of Wisconsin. Margo Squire, welcome to National Security This Week. Thank you very much, John. It's a pleasure to be here. So you're, uh, we're on Zoom, you and I are. Are you at home right now in Wisconsin? I am. Uh, I'm on overlooking the lovely St. Croix River. I can see Afton across the way from me. Uh, I'm just outside of Minneapolis. Okay. All right. So, uh, Margo, I like to start my discussions with my guests to learn a little bit more about their, their professional backgrounds and whatnot. My, my hope is that there are parents and grandparents listening to this show uh, who might uh, turn their, their, their grandkids or, or children onto the idea of, of public service, national service, service in the, in the national security arena as a diplomat or, or something else. Uh, could you start your discussion? Let's, discuss this. Let's start the talk today. Tell us about your path into USAID and, and the Department of State. Well, um, actually, you know, you hear of people who are third, fourth, fifth generation military yeah. uh, families. <laughs> well, I'm a third generation U.S. Foreign Service family. My grandfather was a, uh, started serving for the U.S. Agriculture Department and then Commerce Foreign Commercial Service after World War One. And my father uh, in the 1950s worked for the State Department. So I actually grew up overseas. I was very interested in other cultures, what it meant to be American as I would tra transfer back and forth. And so I think for me, it was a logical progression to go into the U.S. Information Agency and the State Department to represent the United States and continue that service overseas to our country, to our foreign policy. And, and, and what was your favorite assignment during your, your career? It's always hard to say because, you know, every country is different and also every part of your life is different. Uh, one of my favorites was serving in Australia. We had young children. It was a, a, a wonderful place. But in terms of professional, um, I'd have to say it was my first overseas assignment to Moscow where mm. I was for four years. It was the Soviet Union. Uh, I got there after Chernobyl. Uh, for me, working in public affairs to see this, the Soviet Union actually openly start talking about this horrible um, accident that had happened uh, was an amazing thing. And I think that what I really appreciated was that I was there for the four years that this, the Soviet Union was opening up before it fell apart mm -hmm. under Gorbachev. And I was working with journalists uh, who were starting to be journalists, you know, actually asking questions. When I first arrived, 90% of the journalists I worked with were the New York Times and Western journalists, and the Soviet and Russian journalists were afraid to even talk to us. Mm. And by the end, it had flipped totally, and they were <laughs> acting as journalists. And I think that that's what uh, I really started getting my appreciation for the power of the press and what, what, what journalists do to serve people and as an interface between government and the people. Yeah, the vital nature of uh, the fourth estate, right? Keeping uh, government in check uh, in support of uh, freedom and democracy. Uh, so let me let me let's get into our core topic today. There's so much to discuss, and I really want to make sure I take advantage of your expertise today. Uh, let's talk about that core topic: public diplomacy. You, you've had extensive experience in many facets of diplomacy throughout your career. Uh, I think it might help our listeners if we start this discussion for 
to understand a little bit more about what a U.S. Embassy country team is, uh, may that we, we can set that as a foundation for our discussion today. Uh, what, what is a country team uh, in the U.S. Embassy? Who serves on that country team? And why does the organizational structure of that country team matter? Well, in, in a way, if you think about, uh, you know, if you look at an embassy as being like a U.S. company, so you have a, uh, a CEO, uh, uh, you have, you know, a chief financial officer, you have uh, administrative people, you have HR, you have public relations people. So you've got all of these people. What a U.S. embassy is, you know, it's like little America overseas, and it has you know, primarily the State Department, but then it also has, can have up to dozens of other agencies. So the FBI, you can have uh, Department of Justice, you have the U.S. Agency for International Development, you have the Foreign Commercial Service that's working on our trade and business. Uh, so the country team is headed by an ambassador, uh, and he is the direct uh, representative of the president. Ambassadors have to go through, you know, a vetting process, and they they are confirmed by the U.S. Senate. Then, under the ambassador, the country team has rep top representatives of all of these other sections within an, an embassy. So, from the people that are running the embassy in management, the people in consular who are uh, helping Americans that are in distress, which is, the, you know, the number one priority of an embassy, uh, to as I said, the FBI, which is out there to protect and also investigate when, when terrible things happen to uh, Americans after terrorism or murders or whatever, uh, and public relations uh, where I worked, public diplomacy. So uh, in your experience, I mean, I know the numbers have been growing, but there's a difference between a political appointee ambassador and somebody who's a career diplomat being assigned as U.S. ambassador. Uh, can you talk a little bit about those differences? Well, I have some other follow-up questions about the, the country team structure as well. Sure. I mean, yeah, so embassies around, around the world are headed by an ambassador that either comes from within, you know, the, the core, usually the State Department, uh, you know, has, has gone up from, you know, early beginnings through a career, gets to a certain point, and then is nominated by the White House, confirmed by the Senate. Uh, at the same time, there are a number of posts around the world that are uh, where there are people that are nominated uh, by the White House because they, for all sorts of different reasons, they may have a connection to that country, they may, uh, they may have uh, contributed to political campaigns, uh, and they also go through this confirmation process. So any given embassy, you will have one or the other. And, uh, you know, it's something like 90% of, of embassies in Western Europe are headed by career, uh, by professionals. 90% of embassies in Africa are headed by career. Okay, okay. So that already tells you something. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, the, so I served... Uh, uh, almost uh, three years at the U.S. Embassy in Helsinki, Finland, uh, under two different administrations, uh, George W. Bush and then the first uh, administration of, of uh, Barack Obama. And uh, we had two different political appointee ambassadors there. Uh, neither one of them had ever spent time in diplomatic circles uh, and whatnot, but they both turned out to be phenomenally gifted, talented leaders of the U.S. Embassy country team. And then the, the deputy, the deputy chief of mission is invariably a career diplomat. Is that correct? 
Yes, absolutely. That's usually because they have to actually, you know, really oversee the running of the embassy and uh, the conduct and the, the relationships. So, yeah, that's usually definitely a career person. And so when there isn't an amb- an ambassador assigned, they also serve as the charge d'affaires, right? The, the deputy chief. That's, th- that's correct. And we have... Uh, over over the course of the last uh, few months, we've had a lot of, of charges because uh, the nomination process and the confirmation process for ambassadors was held up uh, in the Senate. And uh, so people like my husband, were sent, who was a career ambassador, were then asked to go back as he was to Afghanistan, for example, mm-hmm. to serve as charge acting ambassador until an ambassador could be uh, nominated, confirmed. Yeah. And, and I'll just remind our audience that uh, that your your husband is uh, Ross Wilson, uh, and uh, Ambassador Wilson was on the show with us a few weeks uh, back, uh, actually a couple months back now, uh, talking about uh, what what happened, what transpired as we withdrew from Afghanistan, uh, which was a truly fascinating show. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, and we're broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is retired Foreign Service Officer Margot Squire, and we're discussing public diplomacy and its importance to American national security. Uh, so, Margot, you, you, you clearly have a – the intro sort of explained it all. You have a very strong background in various aspects of uh, public affairs. Uh, we're going to talk about public diplomacy, but it might be helpful for the audience to understand – what public diplomacy is not, before we talk about what it actually is. Uh, What is not in the purview of public diplomacy and the duties and missions executed by U.S. embassy country teams at at embassies abroad? Right. So public diplomacy officers basically articulate policy. They don't form it. So um, while they may be, you know, through experience and outreach, gaining information, which they can feed into either Washington or the, the country team, uh, they're not like the political officers, the economic officers carrying out, you know, government to government relationships, uh, working on trade treaties and, and civilization agreements so that our planes can land in Rome or Paris or wherever in the world. So that the day-to-day operations of and conduct of what we think of as traditional diplomacy in between governments uh, we're not involved in. Likewise, we're not negotiating on behalf of U.S. companies or helping U.S. companies that are in trouble. That's going to be someone in the commercial section. Uh, we're not day-to-day helping Americans who've lost their passports or have ended up in prison or in hospitals. You know, that those are going to be American citizen services officers in the consular section. And we're not giving visas or, or vetting people that are coming from another country to go to the United States. So we're we're trying to explain uh, and clarify what what U.S. policy is yeah. and, and, and our relationships. So there's clearly, I think mo- most people probably don't know this, but there are so many things that happen uh, on, from a U.S. country team at a U.S. embassy abroad to support American interests uh, with the host nation, uh, wherever that may be. Uh, and, and there's some really interesting aspects of how we communicate that that role and, and the role of the United States with the citizens of those countries. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what the, what public diplomacy actually is. I mean, how is it sure. executed? What are you trying to accomplish through yeah. public diplomacy? 
So public diplomacy is really other, unlike uh, traditional p diplomacy, as you can tell from the name, it's reaching out to foreign publics. So it's everything from supporting people to people exchanges to explaining to citizens of other countries, you know, uh, you know, U.S. U.S. positions, what the U.S. is. Um, this really came out of po post World War II, um, it, it, you know, experience uh, when it was clear, you know, before the war, the U.S. was pretty isolated. Uh, we really didn't want to be uh, that involved with the rest of the world. Uh, we were still pretty much growing within ourselves, and uh, so, but we found that that. That, that meant that we were cut off and that we couldn't explain uh, uh, you know what we stood for uh, so things like international radios uh, those were sort of the first ways that we started talking to countries of the world particularly as the Soviet Union and the in Eastern Europe were being closed off you know we created things like the voice of america to explain and give information to people who were not getting information from the outside world uh there were surrogate radios radio free europe and radio liberty that were set up uh, and supported by the u.s government with nationals of those countries speaking in their own languages to the people acting as if they were a free radio within those countries. Uh, the BBC at the same time was also broadcasting. We also started um, ex citizen exchanges. Uh, you know, Senator Fulbright had, had served, he himself had studied in the UK and he saw the benefit of these relationships that come when you are actually living in another country and working and, and, and studying with people. So the exchange, the educational exchange that bears his name, the Fulbright Exchange, was started in 1946 to bring Americans overseas and to bring others from around the world to the United States. And there's a quote that I love that, that he said, which is that educational exchange can turn nations into people. Yeah, that's a good and point. That's humanize, <laughs> and humanize international relations. Because, you know, governments are not very good at usually at talking to other governments or governments talking to people, uh, whereas people can talk to people, uh, particularly across professions, uh, teachers, you know, understand and have the same issues, whether you're in, in uh, Hong Kong or you're in uh, New Orleans. Uh, you know, there are a lot of uh, issues that just cross borders that people can, can, can you know, circumnavigate and i think that that was the most important thing to open up the world to each other and, and so margaret you you've traveled all over the world i've been fortunate enough to do the same i'm sure a lot of our listeners have uh, have also had the opportunity to travel around the world and i think i think one of the things that we we find as as individual citizens uh when we speak with people from other countries in their nations you always hear, oh, we love Americans. We love Americans. They may be opposed to American uh, government actions, but they love Americans. And so that's sort of an example of public diplomacy at work when we as individual citizens travel abroad, have an opportunity to have one-on-one -on -one engagements with citizens from other countries, and we humanize the, re the, the human condition by speaking with each other and building those friendships. Is that, is that, a, is that an accurate uh, assessment, uh? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And one story that I love is when I was working in, in Washington in the office that coordinated the democracy uh, assistance that we were giving to the former Soviet Union, 
we found that these citizen exchanges were some of the most cost-effective ways and a new program was started called the Future Leaders Exchange, which brought high school students mm. from around the former Soviet Union to the United States, living in American homes, going to American schools, volunteering in the community. Uh, and so every year a group would come to Washington and I just remember these students, you know, I would meet with them. Uh, and they would they would go and they would visit members of Congress and they would you know to sort of try to build more support for the program, but also just to show who they were. And I remember, you know, this one young passionate man from a young man from young boy from Kazakhstan, who is who is telling me, well, you know, today I got to see my congressman, and I told him, <laughs> and I'm thinking, wait a minute, you're from Congress, you're but you're talking about your congressman from Indiana, you know, and it was just like. You know, they're, they're, they're people of two states. They can understand us when they go back to Kazakhstan. Yeah. And meanwhile, they have touched this whole community and school uh, in the United States. And so it's just, you know, and opened up the world to their 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 countries and their needs. Uh, and I, to me, I just, that just blew my mind. It reminds me of the importance of a, of a program like the Rotary Youth Exchange Program, which happens all across the U.S. and around the world. A fantastically important program, frankly, for this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so we know that everything today is connected via the World Wide Web. I mean, literally everything. You know, social media has taken over so many aspects of our lives and influences uh, us in uh, so many ways. Uh, profound impact on the news cycle, frankly. What can you tell us about the ways uh, public diplomacy has changed uh, even during the course of your career and, frankly, continues to change with advances in technology and how we're able to communicate things to people all around the world? Yeah, yeah. Oh gosh, this is going to date me. When I started in my in when I started in Moscow, we literally got the news from ticker tape machines. So if you see an old movie, and you'll see these things, and they make a lot of noise, and they're literally taping, you know, typing out the words, and it was called the wireless file because it came by wireless radio, and. So you would get these stories and, you know, cut them off and then you would share them, distribute them to your contacts with like, this is what's happening here. And this is the official, you know, report of our president, uh, you know, his la latest speech. And here's what he says about your country or, or whatever. And uh, so that, I mean, fast forward to personal computers and then, well, first of all, CNN actually in 24 hour news yeah. and then personal computers and then uh and laptops and now cell phones right. the iphone has just revolutionized communications across the world yeah. and obviously the internet so where in the past we might pick up you know take pick up the phone now a lot is being being done over you know facebook and facebook live exchanges with you know the whole world or uh youtube and instagram uh, and, you know, we look at if we look at how this war is being raged in Ukraine right now, uh, it's you know, it's kind of a war of TikTok. Right. Uh, citizens on the ground are taking videos and they're showing real time, you know, the buildup of forces, the 40 miles of, uh, you know, tanks and heavy mun munitions that are heading towards Kiev mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and interviews with people on the streets and at the barricades and pictures of, of destruction in cities um, and people, you know, 30 degree weather in a, a shelter, underground shelter. I mean, 
it's uh, this has completely changed how and revolutionized how people deal with people around the world. Yeah, and I definitely want to dive in more to this whole uh, Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine situation. But uh, let me let me finish out a couple more questions uh, with you. You mentioned the power of the cell phone, right? Uh, the modern day cell phone and the connectivity that we have across all these social networks and everything else. Uh, I, I would just highlight for the audience, uh, much much like Margot, you you mentioned the the. Uh, the wireless connection that you had when you first got to the MC in, in Moscow. Uh, we used to use these uh, teletype machines would, would, would be how we communicated in, in the United States Navy at sea. And you'd have these teleprinters that would print off the messages and it would take forever. And it's this big long roll of yellow paper that you'd have to replace constantly and you'd have to read off the individual message. And you couldn't really make copies of it because there really wasn't <laughs> weren't copy machines at, at sea and whatnot. And that all changed uh, with the advent of uh, modern technology. The purview of the capacity to communicate information on a global scale used to reside solely with national governments. And now you as an individual can actually communicate your ideas on a global basis instantaneously using the power of the cell phone and the Internet. It's just an amazing revolution in information, uh, the ability to move information around the world. I have to think that from a public diplomacy perspective – the complexity of the world's media outlets, uh, availability for so many different communications paths to reach people that for public diplomacy uh, for the Department of State, it's it's so much to try and keep track of right now for our professionals around the world in the Department of State. Can you comment a a little bit about that? Oh, it's absolutely true. I mean, I have to say that probably one of the key ways that we communicated within with ourselves within the embassy <laughs> and with others outside the embassy was through WhatsApp, okay. uh, you know, which is an app that's uh, on your cell phone. And you can send, you know, pictures and videos and texts instantaneously. Um, but uh, so a story that someone once told me, you know, when, when a diplomat, an American diplomat is going to another country, they go to the Foreign Service Institute and uh and they study the language. Mm-hmm. And traditionally, it was very much like you, how you would study a language uh, at a university here. You know, there are books, there are language labs, and you put on you know, your headphones and you, 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 know, you tried to speak and, and follow all of that. Well, after Tahrir Square and the Arab Spring, uh, where people were communicating by their cell phones, and WhatsApp and, and these messaging uh, uh, and Twitter. Twitter was really big, was the really the key thing at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Foreign Service Institute realized that they were not even teaching people how to write or read or, you know, really use the Arabic language until, you know, like six months, a year down the way. And they realized this and they didn't know, like, who to follow. You know, yeah. like, how do you decide, <laughs> you know? who is real and who is not and who can be trusted. So they had to throw, basically throw out the curriculum and start anew from day one using texts on cell phones. Now think about that. New language, Arabic, which has, you know, different alphabet. And you have to start doing that. And you have to, and and also from week one, you have to start following people on Twitter (laughs) and social media, because otherwise you're not going to know what's going on. Right. And so that sort of revolutionized the way diplomacy uh, and diplomats were being taught. Wow. 
So, so let me ask you this, because I, th- I think the way I have always understood it is that, you know, the public diplomacy, the public affairs, uh, public relations that we do in the United States, uh, w- we do our very, very best to deliver actual truth when we speak to other countries and peoples of other countries. How, how do you make sure you don't cross that boundary line between uh, delivering truth and delivering kind of state-sponsored propaganda like we see a lot of countries that's all they have is propaganda Uh, how do we how do we make sure we keep that that firewall up uh that's a that's that's a really good question because you know when i first started in diplomacy i i joined a separate agency it was not the state department it was called the u.s information agency and one of the things that we prided ourselves on was that we were telling the whole truth and we wanted to show the United States warts and all. Yeah. So in other words, the truth, but the good and the bad, you mm-hmm. know, like what's going on in, in the United States in terms of, of, you know, the continuing civil rights questions, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to show don't just, you know, gloss over uh, you know, events, but actually talk about George Floyd, talk about what the debate that's going in the United States, uh, because that's more useful uh, instead of saying, you know, everything is perfect here and just you should just follow the way we are. No, we're struggling. We're trying to figure out how to get, you know, how to improve. Uh, it's a process and you, you know, should be doing the same overseas, uh, you know. Uh, so that was really important. And one of the things that we worried about was being folded into the State Department, we would lose that and we mm-hmm. would become the propaganda, you know, arm of, right. of the U.S. government. And actually, one of the things that's really important is the legislation that set up the work that we do, whether it's the Voice of America or these citizens exchanges, set up a firewall because, you know, coming out of World War II, they saw the Japanese and particularly the Germans had this whole government propaganda thing mm-hmm. uh, directed at Germany as what as much as the rest of the country. That was that a firewall was set up so that we could not direct this power on the United States so that if we were going to be talking to the rest of the world, uh, it couldn't be an, an organization that could be then taken over by a demagogue and used against the American people. And it's why the American people to this day don't even know about really about public diplomacy and, and what we're doing. Yeah. Uh, you know, Voice of America was very hard to even get in the United States, and that was for a good purpose. Right. Uh, so I think we're in some ways we're back to that point of warts and all. Uh, you know, showing the United States in all lights, uh, uh, because, you know, no, no country is perfect, uh, and we all have our problems, but we're trying to solve them, and we can solve them together, and, uh, you know, maybe, maybe working together across borders and nations. I, I like to think that that's the purpose of a democratic form of government, that we, uh, we work hard at democracy, because it isn't easy. It doesn't come cheap and free. <laughs> you have to work at it. Well, and if I could add, that's why public diplomacy has gotten even more important, yeah. because citizens around the world have so much more say in their governments. Yeah. Uh, you know, even in autocratic states, you know, Russia, Belarus, you see the people that are taking to the streets that are protesting. They know what's going on in Ukraine. Right. Uh, and they're, they're not going to be silent. So let's go ahead and talk about the role that public diplomacy plays in actual real world events. And we have it playing out right in front of us right now all over the the TV and the radio uh, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, 
uh, it's been in the news cycle now for <laughs> for seven straight days. I mean, it's twenty four seven news cycle that we're dealing with now. How, how has the United? Well, let me ask you this first. We talked a little bit before we got on the air today about uh, the fact that most professionals, national security professionals have watched Russia practice this sort of disinformation, misinformation campaigns, you know, their own version of uh, delivering what is truth to the world uh, and, and, frankly, internally to Russia as well. Uh, and trying to execute that with this whole run-up to the invasion of Ukraine, they didn't do a very good job of that this time. And, frankly, they were countered by uh, not only the United States but all of our allies calling them out on this misinformation and disinformation campaigns in in sort of a public diplomacy aspect to a certain extent. Can you talk a little bit about what you saw transpire on both the Russian side and on the kind of the NATO alliance side for this whole information war that's been going on? Yeah, I think to me it's been fascinating to watch because uh you know with this awful war build up and then actual war uh in Ukraine uh, you know, the Russians have kind of stuck to their usual play playbook. You know, they have said, you know, they've announced we're having these exercises and, you know, it's kind of like, you know, ignore the fact that we have, you know, hundreds of thousands of more troops and munition than we have ever had in exercises before. And they're all building up, you know, through Belarus on the north and then uh, on the east. And then we've got warships fly, you know, going into the Black Sea. Uh, no, 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 there's nothing to see here. Right. Uh, they, and also, um, they've, they've stuck to their, you know, repeating the same thing over kind of over and over again. Uh, Putin has gotten in front of the Russian people and given these speeches uh, and, you know, and, and, and told sort of, you know, increasing lies about what you know the why he's there what what he's trying to do um you know he's been backed up by people like the foreign minister sergey lavrov um but the fact is that uh you know all of these you know all of the things that they've been saying that haven't been true like the fact that they're there there's been genocide against the people in in donetsk and so they're there to protect them and now we're going to have to you know uh ter- and 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 also that the ukrainians are torturing you know, citizens in, in that in that part of the country. So Russia has to protect these people. Um, it's just, it's not worked no. <laughs> to the extent that they've been able to in the past. You know, they're using an old playbook that they used first, you know, in, in Crimea. They've used it many, many other times. Uh, and also, you know, sort of this this barrage of false information. You know, I, I, I spoke with you about how after the Malaysian aircraft was downed by uh, separatists in the in the east of 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 Ukraine, and then you know the Russians and everyone uh, with munitions from Russia, uh, and the Russians uh, and everyone said, "Oh no no, you know this this was not down by us. This was the Ukrainians. Uh, they blamed the Dutch. Uh, the majority of people on the plane were Dutch. Uh, you know going going off to the Far East. You know they're trying to uh, wreck relations with Russia." Uh, but the thing is, all of these various things uh, added the, to to a huge big lie that then people didn't really know what to believe. Mm-hmm. Well, that didn't work here because, uh, first of all, early on, um, this administration decided to share, uh, you know, intelligence, which I've never seen before. Me neither. So Me neither. Ar- it's amazing. Aerial, 
Yeah, I, I'm glad to hear you say that. Yeah. As, you know, coming from the U.S. military, um, aerial footage of the buildup of all, you know, this huge buildup of munitions and people. And then, uh, uh, and, and also, we, along with the U.K., uh, you know, calling the Russians out on disinformation and also even going a step further to say, you know, we know there are these plots. You know, we know there are these individuals already in the eastern part of Ukraine who are going to create provocation so that the Russians can move in and say that, you know, that all oh, the Ukrainians are, you know, are attacking the freedom loving people of the east. And uh, and so it was like step by step, they were able to counter this, the, the disinformation and the lies and have kept on doing that. And, and, and in some so, cases got ahead of them got ahead of the Russians yes. on their disinformation, which was really impressive. That was amazing. And sharing, I mean, almost real time, you know, yeah. clearly uh, intelligence that's come out. I've never seen that because, first of all, the intelligence agencies were never willing to share information like that because <laughs> they're afraid of their the sources. Uh, but also, you know, some of my struggles over my career was were tr was trying to get just even a little bit of information that I could share from, yeah. you know, the Central Intelligence Agency or others about things that our, you know, journalists wanted, were desperate to find out about. Um, so, so you've got the West just, you know, like breaking through those and, and showing the lies for what they are. Yeah. Uh, the Russians not really being able to figure out how to get beyond that. You've got the Ukrainians, who I think are the real masters. Oh. You know, President Zelensky in, in, in Kiev, you know, with his impassioned pleas uh, and his resolve and his, you know, remaining in Ukraine. I mean, one of the things he said when, I guess, uh, reportedly the U.S. government offered to get him out, fly right. him out, <laughs> was, I don't want, I need ammunition, not a ride. Right. <laughs> and then calling on Ukrainians around the world to come back. The Ukrainian minister of defense on the street with the troops. I mean, I, I can't imagine the Russian minister of defense out there. Uh, and these guys are, they're young and they're, you know, personable and they show resolve. And then the Ukrainian people, yeah. you know, again, with their phones and their TikToks and, uh, you know, standing up to, you know, Russian in invaders uh, is just, uh, it, that, is, that has been a real feat. I think that, that the Ukrainians more than all. And one last thing about Zelensky, you know, from all accounts, you know, his personal appeal to the EU actually created a breakthrough where they were willing to all work together yeah. uh, to, uh, you know, crack down on the SWIFT uh, financial transactions net, uh, network. Uh, really impressive, really impressive. Yeah. Uh, briefly, uh, for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is retired Foreign Service Officer Margot Squire, and we're discussing public diplomacy and the role it plays in American national security. Uh, so, Margot, let's continue on with this theme, talking about uh, Russia, Belarus, Ukraine. Uh, we mentioned earlier the, the country teams. Uh, there has been an ordered departure of uh, the U.S. Embassy personnel out of Minsk, and I'm sure there's a, a bit of an de ordered departure out of Kiev. Uh, you mentioned before we got on the air that we've moved the embassy to Lviv. Is that right? Uh, can you talk a little bit about what it means when we do an ordered departure of the country team? Sure. I mean, there are two. Um, they're basically it's an it's uh, 
it's an evacuation of embassy personnel. So, um, for example, you have uh, you have various stages you have uh, and priorities. You have an authorized departure where people can voluntarily choose to go. So our embassy in Moscow, for example, uh, had uh, uh, officially designated an authorized departure of non-emergency people and dependents. So that meant basically people who are working in the embassy who are not in what's considered crucial jobs that need to be maintained can voluntarily leave. That's an authorized departure. So after, for example, COVID-19, uh, you know, like was shutting down the world, embassies around the world had, had authorized departures, which said that people could voluntarily choose to leave and go home. Uh, where the situation wasn't as bad as in a number of countries around the world. On the other hand, you have an ordered departure, and that's where uh, people are, are literally, as it says, ordered to leave. Uh, and it's usually uh, a lot of times on a case-by-case -case basis, you know, who does the embassy, you know, who is absolutely necessary in the embassy? I mean, speaking from uh, personal experience, uh, having been in Afghanistan through this, through this last year until the end of July, uh, we went through three, dif three different uh, uh, order departures while I was there. For first in April, uh, an initial group of people were asked to leave, and these were people who were, uh, or jobs, not people, but the jobs uh, were designated as being, you know, less uh, vi like vital to the to the embassy because it was seen, you know, the country we need we might need to evacuate the whole embassy at some point. We need to start cutting down. So in April 1st, and then there was another step in, in, in the beginning of July, and then I was in the third order departure uh, in, at the end of July, the 29th okay. of July. So as we're pulling our embassy personnel, the country teams, out of a place like Minsk in Belarus, for instance, that order departure essentially means we're shutting down U.S. diplomatic presence in Belarus. Is that correct? Correct. And if you go to the embassy website, it, it'll act in Belarus, in Minsk, Belarus, it'll say they have suspended operations. So the embassy is closed and ordered the departure of non emergency uh, employee uh, and, and ordered departure. Um, so, uh, so that's man mandatorily they're ordered to leave. Whereas in Moscow, they're on an authorized departure okay where it's voluntary and people can leave so when we when we remove our country team out of a place like minsk belarus uh, all of the traditional roles that diplomats can play we lose that capacity uh, how, how does public diplomacy then step in to maybe replace that in some ways uh, to continue to further american diplomatic efforts towards uh, peace and uh, and security in different regions like Let's take a look at Belarus, for instance. How do we communicate right. with the people of Belarus without a diplomatic presence right. on the ground? Well, you know, through the World Wide Web, um, you know, our our embassy, uh, like, uh, you know, Facebook and social media accounts will continue. Um, they may continue from offshore, but those will continue. I mean, you and I were talking earlier about the Global Engagement Center. Uh, you know, there's a... Uh, a center in in Washington D.C. that's that is involved in coordinating efforts to you know certain parts of the world that are deemed really important, uh, particularly to get our views across to because we're not necessarily on the ground. And initially, this was to you know people in Syria where we uh, closed our embassy, 
and uh, and to counter disinformation coming from those countries. Mm-hmm. And I haven't been following it uh, recently in, in 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 the last few days, but I'm I'm sure that the Global Engagement Center is right now engaged with countering, you know, disinformation that's coming from from Russia and also. Um, you know, amplifying the messages uh, that we and our allies are trying to make to to these people, what we're doing, how re- how our resolve, so they know that they're not alone. That uh, you know, this is what the U.S. is doing. These are the sanctions we're taking in conjunction with the EU and other European countries and other countries around the world, uh, like Japan and Australia, that are not part of the the EU, but are part of this whole global effort. Yeah, it, it has been an ex, just an extraordinary thing to watch to see how fast uh, the essentially the liberal democracies of the world have coalesced around cutting off Russia from assets that allow them to prosecute this war, uh, isolating them in every way possible. I, I, I just, it is incredible to see how fast the democracy have moved on this. And what what role do you think public diplomacy has played in uh, getting the people of those nations, not just the political leaders, but the people as well, to back their political leaders in cramp- clamping down so hard on the Russians in such a short period of time? Yeah, first of all, I have to say that I am amazed to see how fast you know these all of this has come come together, and I can only assume that. But uh, President Putin in Russia and others are also amazed (laughs) uh, and never imagined, you know, like let alone in our own country. I mean, I look at uh, the fact that, you know, President Biden had the State of the Union last night and he started out in the first, you know, 10, 15 minutes were on Ukraine, Mm -hmm. you know, and and showed that resolve to the American people. And I've seen, you know, there was a poll this morning where people were supporting that i mean that is an amazing public diplomacy uh you know it's not foreign publics it's our own public to explain what's going on and how you know this is a country that has you know traditions like ours uh many of many americans uh have roots in ukraine you know there are a lot of ukrainian americans and uh, so people know you know ukrainian americans and they can see you know what's happening and they they see shots of what's going on um so public diplomacy i think has played a huge huge role in shoring up resolve around the world and getting publics to support their their governments and if if anything push their governments to do more um you know if anyone had told me that switzerland was going to crack <laughs> down on russian bank accounts yeah. and you know an oligarch uh, billionaires accounts uh, and that and that Germany would close off the Nord you know Nord Stream 2 uh, p- pipeline uh, when they depend on something like you know 40% of their energy needs coming from Russia yeah uh, is just amazing yeah. uh, so you know all of these steps is, have and and I think really have come about because the world is so wired Mm-hmm. And, you know, what you do in Kiev uh, has reverberations in Tokyo and Sydney and New York. So you're a career diplomat and, and you're familiar with this area of the world, having served in Moscow as your first posting and, and other things that you did during your career as the Soviet Union collapsed and some of those uh, countries uh, gained their own independence and started creating their own independent governments and whatnot. 
What what role do you see for public diplomacy here in in bringing this this crisis to an end? How, how might it be used by the United States and even our our allies around the world in in bringing an end to this conflict in Ukraine? Any ideas? Well, I, well, I think the first thing is that we need to see. Um, I mean, this this unity that we're seeing. You know, whether it's within the United States, whether it's within. Uh, the, you know, within Europe, uh, which remember just recently was all was splitting up and going its own ways. I mean, we saw the French president, uh, you know, Italian businessmen and others meeting with Putin, and it looked like they were going different ways, and they were kind of, you know, not united. And now, so this new resolve that we're seeing has to hold. And I think public diplomacy has a role in keeping that strong and mm-hmm. in pointing out, you know, what's happening, keeping the spotlight on on actually what's happening in Ukraine uh, and pressure on diplomacy, uh, you know, so that there were real talks, not, you know, whatever is happening uh, on the Belarusian Ukrainian <laughs> border where the Russians sent their cultural representative, uh, you know, uh, in a war, in a time of war, do you send your, you know, your cultural minister? Uh, and uh, and and we, you know, so public diplomacy to try to, uh, you know, amplify what people are saying around the world and and what the Ukrainians, you know, show what's happening, uh, and show the demonstrations in Belarus or in in St. Petersburg and, and Omsk and all over the country and all over the world. Uh, so, you know, that's what, what we need to do. And we need to, you know, have, uh, you know, real conversations between citizens in all of these countries. Uh, prote- find ways to, to help support the protesters that are in Russia uh, who are willing to go out you know, in the freezing cold rain and snow and be attacked and, you know, brutally beaten and dragged off to prison, uh, you know, as well as the protests that are happening in, you know, across the Stone Arch Bridge mm-hmm. here in Minneapolis, uh, yeah. you know, show the Ukrainians that, that the world supports them and also keep the world's spotlight on what's happening. So I think public diplomacy has a huge role uh, in getting the word out and getting the word back into Ukraine and other countries. Yeah. Uh, so, Margaret, we're starting to close in on the end of our show for today, sadly. Uh, Matt, could you tell us a little bit, tell our listeners a little bit more about the Department of State and the, and the role of, of public diplomacy in, in state's mission? Maybe talk a little bit about uh, the people that you worked with during your career at, at state. Uh, I mean, how committed are, are, are they to this to the mission of diplomacy uh, through this public diplomacy piece of uh, what 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 covers the diplomatic spectrum? Oh, I just have to say that it's a you know it's a wonderful career. You know, it's not for everyone. Uh, you know, diplomacy. When I was in tenth grade, I was asked. You know, a lot the whole class was asked to say, "What do you want to? You know, what do you want people to say about you?" You know. 50, 60 years from now. And I remember I wrote uh, that I made a difference. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and other people had very concrete things. They wanted to make money. They wanted to cure cancer. They want, I mean, they had specific things. And I thought, oh, mine is so lame. But I realized <laughs> that it's not. It's like, you know, people join the military. 
people join the foreign service because you want to serve right you know or you join the police force or you become a teacher you're serving others yeah. and uh and foreign diplomacy is a way to serve your country across borders you know overseas you spend over half your time in in other countries so if you like people and you you love that that communication and you want a further understanding between people you need people on the ground who are listening to others who are talking with others and public diplomacy is great because you you interact with everyone you know people and academics and economists and professors and common man and government officials I mean, it's across the board it's not just one area and if you're especially if you're interested in reaching out through you know or use social media uh it's i think it's even better uh i am not <laughs> because i'm on the older spectrum uh but um you know it's a wonderful career uh and i've definitely definitely enjoyed it uh my husband and i both both have and raised two children overseas who are citizens of the world yeah. uh and i think that that's something that that's really important and it's it's so i would very much encourage people to to uh you know look into the foreign service go to the the website www.state.govcareers and uh, and take a look because there are there's a spectrum of different things you can do uh, and be a diplomat. Public diplomacy is one, uh, and it's been the one that I have enjoyed the most because of dealing with people. Mm -hmm. uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about what's happening at the uh, at the museums uh, and whatnot that uh, where you you give tours? <laughs> I'll give you that sure, opportunity. We'll sure. finish off on a well, very very positive well, note. <laughs> so most museums are not you know giving public tours yet okay. they're uh because of covid there but there are a lot of very interesting virtual tours and i would definitely encourage that uh there's for there's a, a great exhibition at the minneapolis institute of art that just opened called supernatural america which is uh it's about you know the role of well actually you know the super supernatural and uh you know the other worlds maybe beyond ours uh and, and it, how they've worked through art um there's a great exhibition at the weissman that just that just started building on the minnesota tradition of adoptions mm. uh of children from around the world and uh that's a very interesting look it's uh pictures it, it's built on the pictures that families get when they're adopting a child uh, from overseas. It's the first view, the first personal thing, you know, that you get to think this is this is what the child that I'm going to have. And it's based around that, that very emotional uh, and I and which is really important because to me it underlines the people to people, the the personal basis of of what what I'm interested in in you know, reaching out to other people and cultural relations and international relations. Yeah. So uh, retired Foreign Service Officer Margot Squire, thank you so much for joining us today on National Security This Week. Thank you very much, John. It was a pleasure. Uh, just very last question. Any uh, publications or articles that you would recommend people take a look at uh, to learn a little bit more about the concept of public diplomacy? Sure. Um, first of all, there's a there's a there's a, uh, an organization called the 
uh, advisory commission on public diplomacy, advisory commission on public diplomacy that can tell you uh, all about, you know, sort of public diplomacy. It's been around since the 40s and latest thinking and articles and uh, about how it's changing. I'd say uh, read anything by Joseph Nye, mm, yeah. <laughs> uh, professor and academician who talks about soft power and yeah. the role of, you know, uh, again, what I think of is, as citizen diplomacy in creating uh, and, 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 and the, uh, you know, the, the, the human, humanizing of uh, foreign policy. Yeah. Margot Squires, thank you so much. Thank you, John. Have a great finish to your week. Hey, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. Argo, thank you. <laughs> that was great. Now you're on mute on your end. Was that okay? Yep, that was yep, great. That was great. Good. Thank you. I have uh, Rich Larson, the news director for KYMN Radio, in, in running the booth for me today. And Rich was a uh, uh, international agents or political science? Poli sci major. So he loves this show, this radio show. And uh, I was watching his facial reactions, listening to everything you were saying during our discussions today. And he's like, wow. <laughs> we had an impact. We had an impact. Good, good. All right. Well, thank you very much and have a great rest of your day. All right. All right. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.